Deck maintenance isn't fun. Move the furniture and barbecue, sand and prep, paint, seal, or get a low-maintenance Trex deck. The only colour fade you'll have to deal with is watching the sunset. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Thorpe is coming in, gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. This is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. And welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we're joined by one of the greatest basketballers Australia has produced. Phil Smythe is a three-time NBL champion as a player, a three-time championship coach, and a four-time Olympian who captained the Boomers for 14 years on the world stage, constantly setting new standards and establishing his country at international level. The man known as the General, such was his ability to assess, solve, and lead on the court. Smythe is also remembered as a pioneer for the increasingly popular sport that he made his name in. Phil, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Well, Sam, I'm happy to be there, mate. I didn't realise I was that good. I'm looking forward to hearing about myself now. Well, you sent the script in. I'm just reading on what you've provided, but uh, <laughs> appreciate you doing that. Um, hey, is life well? I assume we find you in Adelaide. Yes, mate. In Adelaide, it'll be cold here, but no, life's pretty good for me, mate. Last uh, couple of years, or probably last five or six, I've been doing a little bit of stuff with the AFL teams, mate. I've really enjoyed that. Still got my foot in basketball as well. I was doing some stuff overseas coaching, so... Uh, just staying busy, mate, trying to stay active. Well, what are you doing in the AFL space? Uh, it's a little quiet window I sit in there, mate. So the last uh, three seasons, I've been with the Brisbane Lions, mate, with Chris Fagan, just quietly spending time with them, mate, working with Fags and the coaches. And uh, it's been a fabulous journey, mate. Chris Fagan is an absolute ripping coach, mate. He is uh, one of the best. He is the template that if you want to set yourself up on something, to be successful, he's certainly one of the guys you'd want to follow. Fantastic. And and actually, your links to AFL, didn't you live in the same street as uh, Mark Williams back in the day, maybe when he was even coaching the power? Oh, you guys have a relationship, don't you? Certainly do, yeah. have a really good friendship with Mark. We did. He bought across the road from me, mate. There were a couple of times I came out the front and he was leading on the gate after a loss, mate, looking for some <laughs> just someone to talk to that could listen to him. And, uh, <laughs> mate, he's, he's doing pretty well at Melbourne, mate. He's... Uh, he's joined Goody over there and they've turned things around pretty nicely. I'll hear his name bandied around a little bit as perhaps someone for Collingwood or one yep. of those clubs. I can guarantee you he would be the right man to get your club back on track. I think his record's impeccable with what he's been able to do as a senior coach and with his development stuff. It's whether he's got the energy. That would be the question you'd have to ask. I can't imagine him not having the energy, to be honest. And there's not a player that doesn't speak so highly of, of Mark Williams over here. No doubt about that. Now, Phil, your resume, we touched on off the top, just goes on and on. Eh? That was the slimmed-down version I had to provide for the intro. But how deep is your level of satisfaction over the career that you were fortunate enough to have? All these years on, as you look back on it, how full is the cup? Yeah, that's pretty full. 
Uh, Sam, I reckon early days, you know, the one people ask you, can you give advice to kids, advice to different athletes? What, what should they? I reckon you've got to be able to look in the mirror at the end and say, you know what? You might not like the reflection that comes back at you. I've never really enjoyed that part. But uh, where you go, I gave it everything I had, you know, and I, I didn't leave any stone unturned to be the best I could be and gave up a lot of things to be successful. And uh, I know now when I sit there, I'm comfortable with myself going, I couldn't have done any more to be the best I could have been. And that's that, that's the comfort that I have with what I achieved. Yeah, and so you should. I mean, But your journey is fascinating in the off-court sense, I suppose, as much as the on-court. Now, you had courtside seats, pardon the pun, to the explosion of the sport in this country. I mean, by the late 80s, it was absolutely booming here. Your, the palace was full, the glass house, you couldn't get a ticket. Over in the NBA, there was Magic and Larry and Michael Jordan exploded on the scene after them. Uh, you must have fond memories of the of the explosion of the game when, when you were playing it. Yeah, 100%. You know the one where you, you arrive at Albert Park, mate, and you, you're in the uh, Albert Park Stadium where it was built in 1964, and you're happy if you get 500 people to a game, and then suddenly... <laughs> Within the space, a really short period of time in the NBL, so say from four years, 79 to 83, it exploded. Exactly what you said, and suddenly you're playing a full house of 6,000. You can't get a ticket in Melbourne. You know, the tennis centre's full. When they build it, you go, this is just great. And you've come from a game where you used to have to pay to get in. There was no recognition. So you're much more appreciative, I think, when you've gone through that travel as opposed to a young kid that makes it into the AFL and it's already there for him. So... You know, a lot of guys that went through with me, Larry Senstock, Wayne Carroll, those kind of guys, Ray Borner, we all went through that period where basketball was low profile and suddenly it became this boom sport. So we really embraced it and enjoyed that period. It was a great time. I was going to ask you that because it's gone from obviously amateur to semi-pro to pro. You actually did used to hand over some cash as a player just to enter the stadiums, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely, mate. When you wanted to, uh, when you played uh, senior basketball, sometimes you had to pay to get in. And, uh, you know, you had those three-game road weekends, which were a killer. Expensive. And then, as you said, suddenly it became uh, semi-professional. Then it became professional. And uh, you look at some of the players now and you go, gee whiz, what a great lifestyle. Yeah, they're, they're, and some of the players now playing in the NBA. It's fantastic. We speak a lot about the Perth Wildcats, and, and rightly so. I think they've won five championships in the last seven years or whatever it is. But, gee, your, yep. Cam- your Canberra Cannons, I mean, three titles in the 80s. What was life like in the nation's capital at that time? I mean, sadly, the team isn't around anymore, so we don't tend to dip into the that sort of nostalgia too often. But can you set the scene for us at that time and how the locals got behind it, Phil? Yeah, look, it was a, a really great time, Sam, and uh, it, it was different. And it is that you touched on. It is sad that they're still not there. But um, so Bobby Turner took the coaching job there in 1983, and said he was on a three-year program to build the Cannons to a successful team and to get the city uh, to embrace basketball. And basketball was going to give Canberra a soul, you know, because it's always seen as real sterile. It's where the politicians were, and so you know, the first year, first game, I can remember going out, mate. There was a, a black tarp at the end of the court. <laughs> And there was maybe 1,500 people at the game. Midway through the year, suddenly it was sellout crowds and it was bigger than anything that I'd played in in Australia at that time. And then over the next three or four years, it continued to explode more. And then I reckon to try and draw a comparison, remember Canberra's a smaller city as well. So my mum came over one time and we went shopping and uh, we got home. We'd been about an hour and a half and something was going to take 15 minutes. And she said never going shopping again with you in Canberra ever again. 
She said, I've never been stopped so much in my life, people talking and watching you as you walk through the crowd. So it's very much that uh, you're a celebrity, a high-profile celebrity in a town. So you'd liken it to Buddy Franklin at his best in Melbourne or Gary Ablett, you know, for the people in Melbourne to understand that. And so you become a bit of a recluse. Uh, you don't go and do your shopping. You don't go and do those things because it takes too long. And, yeah. Uh, so at the time it's exciting, you get a, a look into what it would be like to be a, a rock star or a movie star and, you know, you want your anonymity back. So that, that explosive period for eight or nine years in Canberra was fantastic for basketball. It was a great education and, you know, you, you enjoyed the highs of success in a city that hadn't had much. And then suddenly the Raiders in the rugby league were winning as well and sport was booming in Canberra. It was a great time. Did you enjoy that side of it, Phil? You strike me as the sort of person that, as you just touched on, enjoys your anonymity as much as anything. But for that period of time, you know, when in Rome, do you embrace it? Uh, look, it's probably a bit of both, Sam. I think the first year or two was kind of exciting, and then it gets really wearing and tiring. And uh, I probably had enjoyed and still do enjoy a bit of private life. And, you know, when you step away from it, you get that back uh, to a degree. But certainly great for the ego, you know, it makes you feel really good about yourself and, you know, you, you go I went and watched the Australian netball team play one time at the Palace and very fortunate again when you've got profile people like you to be at those games because it's a, a talking point for the media and um, I was sitting in the front row with a couple of the other players and there was a line up from where we were sitting outside the stadium door getting autographs through the whole game, so uh, you know, I think the thing you learn from it, Sam, and it gets lost a bit is you still have to be accessible to the kids and to all those people. So try and find that balance of, I really like my private life, but these people also want to know you, they want to touch you, they want to talk to you. So you have to embrace that as well. It's just finding the balance in that. Yeah, as we touched on, you became known as the general. It never ceases to amaze me how great some of the nicknames have been in the NBL over the journey, though, Phil. I mean, the Alabama Slammer for James Crawford, you know, Mark Chairman of the Boards, Davis. My personal favourite, the landlord, Simon Dwight. The list goes on. Uh, Robert, Baseline, <laughs> Bandit, Sibley. There's some absolute crackers in there. Yeah, it is one of those things that you do enjoy and look back and... Uh, Bear in mind, of course, too, Sam, I was called a lot of other names over the journey, uh, some of them that you wouldn't want to repeat, and often during a game, and uh, it was a really good nickname. It turned out a fellow called Phil Lynch that was commentating in Canberra, Phil commentated the Olympics, uh, he was the one that threw it out about my third game in Canberra, saying that uh, Phil Smythe, the general, and then it just stuck from there. And uh, it wasn't until towards the end of my career I actually met Sir Donald Bradman in Adelaide, and... Uh, which was just a great honour, mm. and uh, he brought it up. He said, oh, you know that I was actually called the Little General. And I went, well, we, okay, it'd be nice to be compared with the great man. So uh, I'll take that one on board. Of course, Luke Hodge now calls himself the General through his career. So uh, Hodge and I have been having a bit of a battle on who was the original General. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, he's laying greater claim now because he's uh, got more profile. <laughs> I like it, Phil. I like it. Now, there's a bit happening in basketball at the moment, it's fair to say. At the time of us speaking, Melbourne United are two uh, zip up in the finals against the Wildcats and obviously one <laughs> win away from the championship. But I wanted to ask you, as someone who obviously featured in four Olympic Games and you wore the green and gold for nearly two decades, are you... Somewhat disappointed with the news, albeit I think there's still unconfirmed reports as we speak today that Ben Simmons has pulled out of the team for Tokyo. 
Yeah, it's probably a mixed bag for me, Sam. I, I think we need to understand with Ben. Obviously, we're disappointed because we want a player of Ben's calibre playing for the country, certainly at the Olympics because he's such a star. But I reckon growing up where it's changed, in my era, everyone wanted to play for Australia. The Olympics was the ideal. Mm. Over the journey now, the NBA has become that ideal. Players are making their living in it. So I reckon just under Ben, you've got... Uh, Joey Ingalls and Paddy Mills and those guys that still had that ambition to play for Australia, whereas Ben was the younger one in that his drive was to play in the NBA. So playing for Australia, although it means something to him, it's not as great as it is for that new era of player. And also you've got to remember, Ben's on a $243 million contract that he's in the middle of. There, The owners and the coaches are saying, hey, mate, we need you to work on your game. We need you to spend time here. We're your, we're your employee. So I think there'd be some pressure on Ben also from them to go, mate, we pay you a lot of money to play well and we need to work on your game, so you need to stay here. So I'm disappointed, but I, but I really understand where, where Ben's coming from. So this choice, Phil, you know, NBA over representing Australia, I mean, do you suspect we're going to see more of this? I mean, do, do we have at the moment, you suspect, perhaps the last group or main, the majority of this last group committed to Australia, the last of their kind, so to speak? Yep, I think the, this is the rare group that's left. You know, Bainesy and Paddy, as I said, and Joe and those guys. And Joe's been a big driver in that, along with Paddy Mills. So they've been able to drive that love for playing for Australia. I think what you'll see is a bit like the NBA, where they may play in one Olympics. They'll pick the one that they want to play in, and then you won't see them again. Mm. Playing for Australia is not their priority. It's, it's how they make their living, too. I mean, I, again, you know, as much as... Uh, I'd love Ben to play, and I fully understand he doesn't have the passion that I had or Andrew Gaze or those kind of people. It's just the changing of the guard. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life, all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Phil Smythe's wonderful journey to the NBL is up next. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We're with four-time Olympian and basketball great Phil Smythe. Now, Phil, growing up, you didn't have a court out the back at home, I don't think. Mum would wind up the clothesline, (laughs) wouldn't she? Uh, You're well researched, Sam. That is a fact, mate. We had the... Old Hills Hoist clothesline, and uh, you had to get it in the end wire, which was the hardest one in, and uh, we had a cement out the back so you could bounce the ball okay, but uh, shooting and playing games against my brother was always challenging, mate. Just a little tacker with big dreams like all of us growing up at that age? Yeah, no doubt. I was fortunate around the corner from us, there was a church that had an outdoor basketball court, and I'm fairly confident that uh, over the journey that uh, the neighbours that were around there would go, here comes that little mongrel with his basketball at 7 o'clock in the morning to drive us crazy. And he's still there at 6 o'clock at night making uh, that noise against the wooden backboard. So, yeah, mate, it was one of those ones where, you know, you're out the back and we all do it as kids. And, you know, I'm going to score on Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And, uh, you know, this one's over Werner Lind. Or this one's, uh, you know, just the great players that have played before me. Yeah, fantastic. Those guys were Kenny Watson. You know, you go, great coaches, great players. So you have those little mind games going on all the time. 
So zip forward, Phil, 1979, the NBL has just formed and oh, you're around 20 years of age and by this point you're regarded as one of Australia's best point guards and, and in fact by this stage you've already represented the country at the 1978 World Championships. You would go on to attend the 1980 Olympics in Moscow but you don't enter the NBL until 1982. Now you chose to stay in Adelaide, you were playing for Sturt. Why was that? Yeah, look, I, I think man on loyalty still playing emphasis on that today. And Sturt was the club I grew up playing with in my juniors and played for them in seniors. And I was hopeful that they would get into the NBL. And the first couple of years, it kind of looked like they might be a chance. And then it became obvious that, that, that they weren't going to make it. And so, obviously, you want to be a, a better player, you've got to play against a better competition. So I formed a really good relationship with Brian Curl and still good friends today. And Curly, of course... Uh, coach of St Kilda said, mate, we need to get you over here and get you playing. So in 1982, I'd actually just bought my own sporting goods business here in Adelaide. So I actually commuted four times a week back and forth from Adelaide to Melbourne to play with St Kilda. And uh, mate, I had a big fat contract that year too, Sam, let me tell you. Yeah. It was a solid $1,500 for the season. <laughs> so uh, clearly, mate, I wasn't a good agent because I reckon I spent more car park money at uh, oh. Adelaide Airport Park in Makata get in and out of the airport, mate. So uh, it was an interesting journey. The airport parking would have dwarfed the $1,500 salary. <laughs> mate, I said I was loyal. I didn't say I was smart. <laughs> so, uh, you know, yeah, no, it, did. it didn't make sense to do it that way. But it was a great year. I really enjoyed that year. And then uh, I had the opportunity to go to Canberra work at the Institute of Sport with Adrian Hurley and my then, well, ex-wife now, Jenny Cheeseman, had taken a job there. So the two of us ventured over to Canberra and Bob Turner and I had become friends. So all those cards. Well, I was only going to Canberra for uh, two or three years and then back to Adelaide. And as it turned out, we were there for 10 and it was 10 fan- fantastic years. Yeah, and sadly, I don't think anyway, no frequent fly points back at that point in time either or you would have racked up a real handsome, <laughs> no. handsome amount. Um, you mentioned Bob yeah, Turner. Yeah, Bob Turner getting up yep. to Canberra. How did he sell it to you? Because... The success that was to follow your move there, we'll get to in a moment, it was immediate. But how did he sell the vision? Because it was about the long term, wasn't it? Yeah, it was about the long term. Well, his, his sell to me at the time was that uh, this is a three-year plan to uh, bring a championship to Canberra and build the stadium to sell out crowds. Uh, so that, that part, and Bob and I, he tried to get me to go to Newcastle when he was coaching in Newcastle. So he's an outstanding recruiter, Bob, and a really nice guy, and um, at the same time that he was trying to get me to come to Canberra was at the same time that the jobs were opening up at the Australian Institute of Sport. So I, I had the chance to go in and work as an assistant coach under Adrian Hurley, and it kind of looked like the perfect fit for a guy that just wanted to be around basketball his whole life. So mm. there were a few things, two pieces in the puzzle that all sort of fell into place that, that made that decision easier for me. Now, despite commuting four times a week or whatever it was to, to Melbourne from Adelaide, I think you ended that first season as uh, a member of the NBL's first team and you were crowned Defensive Player of the Year. So by the time you you better down in the one place consistently with uh, with your wife, success was probably always going to follow, Phil. So back-to-back titles in your first two years at the Cannons, West Adelaide Bearcats up first in 83 and then the Bullets in 84. I mean, this is the stuff of dreams and then some, isn't it? Yeah, you're 100% correct, mate. It is It is the stuff where you go, wow. I can actually remember after the winning it against Westies, Bob and I had that moment where you embrace. And, uh, you know, I said to him, well, this is the shortest three-year program I reckon I've ever been on, mate. And we were both <laughs> laughing about it at that time. And then 
you don't dare to think it's going to repeat itself next year, and then you know a few years later it's going to happen again. It's uh, and and while all that was happening, we returned back to Canberra after that first win, and I was sitting in the tarmac, and they asked the the team to stay on the plane, which was you know it's an unusual thing because it doesn't ever happen, and then. We couldn't quite work out what was going on. Then we got off, and the airport was just full. Thousands and thousands of people in the airport, and you couldn't get out. It took hours to get out of the airport. Wow. It had engrossed the city to fanatical stage, and uh, that was all fun. You know, they're just great memories. That, and you take it for granted a little bit uh, when it happens so quickly. You go, oh, this is great. will happen again. Yeah. And then you realise across the journey that uh, winning be it an AFL final, an NBL final, anything at that level takes takes a long time to repeat. You're Defensive Player of the Year again in 83. You're in the All-NBL first team in 83 and 84 as well. But So your own contribution is obviously enormous to the Cannons program, Phil. But what made the team successful? Looking back, what what was the trigger or triggers to, to, to I guess, find such great synergy and chemistry in a short space of time? Oh, I... I the uniqueness of the players in the group. Um, I think Herb McGeechan is a name that you don't hear much unless you're a basketball lover of, of 40 years. Most people forget Herb's name because Canberra aren't in it anymore. You don't hear about him as a pass player. He was a phenomenal player. You know, you're talking about a guy that was Leroy Loggins like. He just didn't score the way Leroy did. You know, he'd have unbelievable defensive games, mm. dominate the rebounding. And he could easily have a 30 point game, but. He chose to be the team player. So whatever it took for the team to win, he would take that role and he could do it. Then you had other guys, Dave Nelson, you know, Mark Dalton came in later as juniors. And there were, there were a lot of talented players in that group and all of them were happy to play for the team to win. There were no egos. There wasn't a team where it's all about me. I'm going to score 50 points. I don't care whether we win or lose. So we had a unique group of guys that were hardworking and prepared to do whatever it took to win. Another championship followed in 88. This one was against the North Melbourne Giants, and you're named the, the series MVP. And, and just the Cannons' popularity at this time, which we have touched on, Phil, but just yourselves and the Raiders in town up there, it became a real basketball city. Now, the AIS was obviously there as well, where Bill Sweetnam was the yep. swimming coach at the time, and he, gee, did he have some superstar athletes that underneath him there at the AIS. Now, he used you guys to motivate his swimmers, did he not? He did, you're 100% well-researched, Sam, yep. Um, because tickets were at such a premium, you couldn't get them. There were no giveaway tickets as such, but the players always got two tickets each. So, uh, and Bill, working with Bill, um, he came and said, mate, what is the chances of getting a couple of tickets for my swimmers so I can use them during the week to motivate the best two swimmers that they can go and see the team live? So we organised a couple of tickets for Bill, and he said... That, that was the most successful item he used ever to get his athletes to swim better. So, yeah, and then, you know, a lot of the swimmers, you'd see them when you come in for training because we all train in the indoor facility there. They'd turn up and watch training. you get to know them all. So there, there was a massive focus from the Institute Sport on the, on the Canberra athletes to do the right thing and set good examples for them as well. So who are we talking here? This is sort of Kieran Perkins's era, isn't it? Yep, Kieran Perkins was there. Lindley Frame was there at that time. Uh, you know, you're talking about the, mm. the best swimmers in the world, gold medalists, that were keen to come and watch a game. There were some of the biggest names later on that went on to be superstars in their sport that were 
all basketball freaks for the cannons. Love it, love it. You with This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You can visit them at tobinbrothers.com.au. We'll be back with Phil Smythe right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with a member of the Order of Australia and Sport Australia Hall of Fame basketballer, Phil Smythe. Phil, right throughout your 356-game NBL career, you were widely praised for your basketball IQ, your smarts out on the floor. Was there an element of that that was innate or was it harnessed through guys like Lindsay Gaze, who was obviously a boomers coach in the first two Olympics that you, you went to? Where did it sort of come from and how was it harnessed? Yeah, look, probably uh, a little bit of both. I think I always wanted to study the game. Lindsay Gage was great for me early in my career. He was fantastic, and I have a great love for Lindsay, uh, you know, in the time that he spent uh, and his wisdom in helping me educate that. So, you know, we'd play on the college, go on the, on the tours around the world or into the States, and always took a book with me and wrote down the offences that they ran or how they played defences, and then I started trying to analyse it in a game. But Lindsay probably did it. I've never actually asked him. I must ask him whether it was purposeful or not, but how he wanted certain things run and where certain players need to be placed. So I spent a lot of time organising that. And then I started to dissect it more. For instance, uh, you know, Andrew Gaze is getting a lot of shots in that particular spot there and he's shooting them really well. How do I orchestrate the offence to get him the ball at that right time? So I think then that just developed over time, the speed in with which to be able to do it during a game. And as we've touched on a couple of times already, I mean, you obviously came through at a time when, when basketball in Australia, it really rose in its sense of professionalism. What, what are your training habits, Phil? So mine didn't change a lot. And I, because I loved it so much, I, I used to get up early in the morning. and uh, So this is sort of pre, say, Australia Day. So I'd get to a basketball court around the corner with two fellas, a fellow called John Wright, another guy called Neil Glidden, who were my junior coaches and really big on fundamentals. They played a pivotal part in my success getting my fundamentals right so they'd give up their time during the week in the mornings then I'd shoot around at school I'd ride home go around to the court and shoot there for a couple of hours and then before it became professional I used to well, obviously held a job so I'd get up in the morning I'd go for a run and in my lunch hour I'd go to the stadium and shoot around for an hour on my own and then there were always team trainings in the night and then when I went to the institute I took it up another level because the facilities were there where I could work do my individual training for an hour and a half, do my team training at night, and then do my weights during the day. So I probably was the first professional athlete at basketball in my time because other guys were working jobs, and I was just so engrossed in the game. I put all my energies into basketball and not other things. So three titles and obviously a rollicking good time in Canberra in the 80s, but what lured you back home to Adelaide to sign with the 36ers for the 93 season? Yeah, our family uh, was always big to me. and We've been away for 10 years, uh, and it was just time to come home. I, w- I wanted to come back to Adelaide. And I wanted to play in Adelaide before I finished. And uh, so, again, it was that domino effect of three or four things happening, and it just seemed the right time to get back to Adelaide. And um, it was a hard decision. You know, it was tough not staying in Canberra. And... Um, 
I thought about it for a long time and then Jenny wanted to get home and we had kids then, so I wanted the kids around the grandparents as well. So that was the main drive was family to come back home. Yeah, and that club had obviously underperformed, but you helped get them to the 94 final series. The club loses that, but has obviously made significant strides. How would you describe your relationship and how did it evolve with the coach at the time of the 36ers, Mike Dunlap? Yeah, well, I, the first year I came back, Don Monson was coach. So it was Don Monson was a, right. an unbelievably good coach. And so I got on really well with Don. Then Mike arrived, and, uh, you know, I, I can remember going and sitting with him when he arrived. There'd been some speculation that he didn't want me on the team and didn't really like older players. So I went and had a meeting with him and said, look, Mike, this is what I'm hearing. I said, I'm a big boy. I've been around a long time. And if you don't want me on the team, I understand. I'll, I'll go and play somewhere else. But, you know, you coaches want to have the players they want. And he was like, no, 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 want you. It's all great. And then uh, a couple of games in, you know, and of course then once you'd played some games, you couldn't go anywhere else. So um, Mike decided to start Brett Maher ahead of me. And Brett's become a fabulous player. And I said to him at the time, I said, oh, so you're starting Brett because he's better? He said, oh, no. I said, oh, so you're starting him because he's training better? He said, no. So well, I don't understand. He said, oh, I'm starting him because he's younger. I went, okay, so, and, and you live with that. You can adjust, you can spit the dummy, and, and or mm. you can go, well, let's just play the best basketball we can and, and be the team man. So we actually had a meeting a couple of weeks later because a couple of the other players weren't happy as well. And went down to a place in Glenelg, I can remember it was Mama Camilla's just near the beach, and yeah. the whole team sat there, and everybody was, you know, moaning a bit about, didn't like Mike, didn't rate him, and, you know, he obviously was causing some fractions in the group, and, so I said, look, guys, no one's copying it here more than me. I said, we can waste this year, or I think we're a chance to win it. Let's not waste the year. You know, let's work together and, and win a championship. So all the players collectively got together and said, let's focus on that. And that's what we did. And we knew it well. In the end, uh, obviously, the Magic were too good. Mm. They went on and won it, deserve it deservedly so. But uh, then the following year, I left and went to Sydney, uh, and I, uh, Sydney was struggling the year before. Bob Turner was the coach. That was the attraction to go there. And uh, then I tore up my shoulder about seven weeks into the season when we were just sitting nicely in third spot. And it was uh, a long surgery to come back. It was it took over a year to come back from that. So I uh, came back from the shoulder surgery and was trying to decide whether I wouldn't or would play. Went down to Melbourne and trained with Lindsay. And Lindsay offered me a contract. And then at the last minute, I said, you know what? I can't do it anymore. And uh, the reason for that was I'd said all along in my career when I wouldn't do the extra work that had made me be a good player, that was the cue for me to go, it's time to get out, don't hang on. And I just didn't want to do the extra training that I used to do on my own. So yeah. I knew that it was time. So I went and said to Lynn no, mate, I'm, I'm done. And uh, he tried to talk me out of it. And uh, in hindsight, he may have been right. But for me, at that time, that was the decision. So that brought playing to a close. Were you always going to coach, Phil? Hey, that's a bloody good question, Sam. I, I reckon I... Uh, well, when I came back, I actually had taken a year off and spent some time in the media. Channel 7 had actually just offered me a, a really good job, and I was about to take the job with Channel 7 when Ray Wood, former NBL player, a really good player for Westies, and was on the board of the Sixers, rang and asked me to interview for the job. And I said, look, to myself, if I don't do it now, then you're away from the game too long when you haven't got a base to come off. So mm. it was kind of now or never. And so interviewed for the job and 
as luck would have it, I got the job and then uh, had some success along the way with that as well. Yeah. Now, just on this decision, obviously a, a person and a player like you and an athlete like you, you don't get to where you got to get got to without belief, drive and, and a, I guess a supreme inner confidence. But the fact that you'd only been a specialist coach at the AIS, I think you'd coached South Adelaide's women's teams in the 80s, and yet then here's the 36ers offering you uh, the full-time job for the 1998 season. So was there any ever any doubt in your mind that you had the runs on the board, that you were ready? And was it daunting early on, particularly in those first couple of months? Yeah, always daunting, Sam. Doesn't matter how long you've been coaching, mate, it's always daunting. I, I was reasonably confident because I'd had that 10 years working under Adrian Hurley. Yes, I was the specialist coach. And then at times I was the assistant coach in games, always with Pat Hunt. And there were other times where I got to coach. So... I kind of felt like I'd, I'd done a fairly good apprenticeship with Adrian, and obviously when I was with Lindsay, I took a lot of knowledge from him. But mm. probably the smartest decision I ever made in my coaching career, Sam, is I reckon you've got to recognise that you've got weaknesses. And a lot of people don't want to. In fact, they want to pretend they haven't got them. So I knew my weakness was that I hadn't coached in the NBL. A fellow called Steve Breeny, who'd been a head coach uh, in Canberra when I was there. He'd played on the Olympic team. He'd been assistant coach with Brett Brown for a championship. He coached Geelong in the NBL. So I recruited Steve as my assistant coach. And uh, I thought, I've got the smartest basketball brain in the country right next to me. Mm. And uh, we'd also been friends for a long time. So that, that was the thing that gave me great comfort, knowing that Steve was there and I could go to him to get the pieces that were missing. And, and, it, and it worked out great. It did, because like you experienced as a player, success was immediate as a coach. So you win titles in 98, 99, again in 2002. <laughs> so you mentioned ident- yep. knowing your weaknesses and admitting and almost owning up to them, but what were your non-negotiables as a coach? You know, what did you find worked and, and what didn't work? Um, well, the non-negotiables for me were if you ever put yourself ahead of the team, we're going to clash. No question. So that, that was the first non-negotiable. The second non-negotiable was, I want to know from you guys as players what you're prepared to give up to make the other players around you better. That was the second one. The third one was, I won't tolerate lateness mm. at any stage, you know, unless it's family-related. Don't come in and say, oh, I'm late because the car broke down. Or So we had a three-strike rule, and it never... I got activated a couple of times in humour. And the fourth one was that understand that this is a really serious business we're in, but understand that we're here to have some fun as well. Because if we have fun, we'll do a much better job at what we're doing. Yep. And so we, we created that element of we need to have fun. And uh, fortunately, the group that we were able to mould together the first four or five years, all those guys had those elements. And so it, it was a much easier ride in the first four or five years for sure. You got the Boomers job in January 2001. Now, you, the record says you lasted eight months, but how do you look back on, on this period, Phil, and can you enlighten us as to, as to how you look back on it? Yeah, no, look, well, I actually really didn't want to do the Boomers job at that time. I, I just didn't think I was ready, but Steve Brenny was desperate to do the job. He, he wanted us to take it, and he thought we could do a lot of good things with the Boomers, so... I thought, okay, now's a good time. And I sat down and talked with, obviously went through the interview process. And very shortly into that process, you realise that people are on different pages. And some of the administration in Basketball Australia 
I don't think we're, I think they wanted uh, Brian Gorgian to get the job, which was fair enough. I had no issue with Brian. He, he's a ripping bloke. And uh, so there was always a little bit of head banging that, that happened at the start. And Bernie Lewis, who was chairman of the Sixers in my first five or six years, was a, a man I had huge respect for. And I went to Bernie and said, look, I don't know what to do here, Bernie. I said, I, I don't think I can do this job. I think we're just getting too handicapped. So our first trip overseas to Japan uh, with the Australian team, we uh, we don't take a manager because uh, he can't make it the first week because he had work commitments. So Gordy McLeod, Stephen myself are downstairs washing uniforms and organising trainings and doing all that. And then, uh, you know, there were some changes that were made uh, to play New Zealand. We totally disrespected New Zealand. And... Uh, I said to Basketball Australia at the time, you understand that New Zealand nearly beat us in the two practice games leading into the Olympics and 11 of those Australian players have retired. This is a completely new group. New Zealand have kept their group together. So they're much more advanced than we are. Do you understand that? Oh, yeah, it's only New Zealand. And I kept saying that to them. Then there was a big shift. A fellow called Gary Evans shifted the games from the end of our NBL season obviously when the players were playing at their best, and put it two months after the season finished. But the reason being that New Zealand were very clever, a fellow called David Crocker had outsmarted them, who now works for FIBA, in that our players would then have not have played for two months. Meanwhile, New Zealand were coming to the end of their season. So it's like saying to Cathy Freeman, we want you to run your best time, but you're not going to train for two months. And you go, so I'm saying to them, you're exposing us here. We're really exposed. I was banging heads a lot with the administrators, and I, I said before we left, regardless of what happens here, I, I'm resigning. And uh, as it turned out, we lost to New Zealand in three games, uh, and New Zealand then went on to the World Championships and finished higher than Australia had ever finished. Yeah. So you, you're bitterly disappointed that they're not taking your basketball knowledge and saying, okay, we understand what you're saying. They're just going, no, we're just doing it. We're just going to do this. And uh, I look back on it, and I remember coming back. A lot of media around it at the time, you know, because it was the first time Australia had lost to New Zealand. And I said, don't blame the players. You know, I was the coach. Uh, Players gave everything they could. And there were a lot of guys that were injured that were unavailable, but New Zealand were just a better team. That's the reality of it. Mm. And uh, I think after that time, and then you're bitter for a little while. You know, you're bitter on those people. And people that have been waiting a long time to have a crack at the tall poppy syndrome, they came from all directions. So you've got to wear some of that. Yeah. Um, So there's a... A bitterness about it but then you know Brian took over the job and then Brian lost to New Zealand here in Australia so suddenly I remember getting heaps of calls from journalists going oh they got to sack Brian Gorgian I'm saying not at all I said we need to support Brian we need, we need to stay with him and let him mold the group and then Brett Brown took it on after Brian left and and he lost to New Zealand by bigger margins and you know it's not the one where you say I told you so I was right you just go, just don't disrespect the opposition. Mm. Don't disrespect other countries. You know, Australia is a great basketball country, but other countries are catching up and doing a great job of it. We're talking to Phil Smythe on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Up next, we'll discuss Phil's long and glorious career with the Boomers. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And Phil Smythe is our guest today. Phil, you achieved basically everything you could as a player and a coach in the NBL. But the Olympics, was it the pinnacle? Was it the highlight of your career and what you found yourself or find yourself recalling most fondly all these years on? Yeah, no, the Olympics, no question, Sam. That, that, that's the one. You know, as a kid growing up, that's that's the, the goal, mate. I mean, the NBL titles, of course, are fantastic, but the Olympics, it's, it's next level. And uh, they are the ones, you know, they come around every four years. Well, five, this one in Tokyo, of course, where you have those moments of reflection and how you went and what you did and the team you, teammates you played with and the moments. So... Yeah, no, no question the Olympics are uh, the special moments. And you touched, I guess, on what's been a generational shift in this space, but am I right in saying you never grew up dreaming of playing in the NBA? It was the Olympics that really stirred that passion in you as a youngster? Oh, 100%. No question at all, mate. Uh, and, you know, where it's changed the most, of course, if we talk about our time playing, you know, most of the stuff you heard about the NBA was what you read in Sports Illustrated. You know, we didn't have the TV that you have now. We didn't have Fox, ESPN and all that information where you're watching the NBA all the time. So growing up as a kid, for me, it was all about playing for Australia. You know, there was nothing more important than playing for Australia and going to the Olympic Games. Nothing. And and you didn't just preach that or say that. You lived it because the Boston Celtics, if we go back to around the late 80s, they pretty much guaranteed you a contract, didn't they? Yeah, that's a good call, mate. You've researched well, mate. Yeah, 88, they uh, they came and spoke to me. They're actually talking about moving Danny Ainge on. So the guy that spoke to me was made straight into veterans camp and uh, straight into the team if you if you come to veterans camp. So I didn't have to do anything else, which was then the best pathway. You know, you didn't have to go to rookie camp, didn't have to do anything else. And uh, so I sat down and thought about it for a while and, and I came back to the same answer. You know, it just wasn't the dream for me. The dream was to keep playing for Australia and the disadvantage, of course, had I have gone then, and it may not have worked out for me, it might have, we never know that, was that once I went to the training camp, uh, I was classed as a professional, mm. which meant I could never play for Australia again. So I just, that was the sticking point. Had it have been four years later, and I could have gone and still played for Australia, things might have been different, but it didn't open up till 92, and I, I just didn't want it. Yeah. Didn't want to give up playing for Australia. No regrets in that space? Uh, yeah, every now and then, you know, certainly now uh, more because you want to test yourself against the best. But, you know, so no, probably not in the end, Sam. If it was what I wanted to do, I, I just wanted to, like I said, he's coming at the same thing. I just want to play for Australia. I want yeah. to be an Olympian. That, that's what I wanted. So it's not a very big regret. It's probably the one of the question of answering, you know, you could have been one of the first players to go and play in the NBA. You could have done really well. Lots of could-haves, and there could have been a lot of bad memories. So, not not really. Just those moments where you think, could I have done it or not? Well, you were certainly an Olympian. In fact, you were an Olympian four times over. You went in 80, 84, 88, 92 for a best result of fourth in 88 in Seoul. You played in five world championships for the best result of fifth. And Australia, as we know, the boomers still hunting that elusive medal at the Olympics in particular. Now, there's been some painful lessons learned in this space, Phil, but... This is obviously part of the cut and thrust, isn't it? And the intensity of any sport at the highest possible level when, you know, the margins are so small. Yep, and that's exactly what it comes down to in the end. They're minuscule. You know, the, those one percenters that we hear everyone talk about, they're the ones that make the difference in, in the big games. You know, you can win some big guys like we upset Spain in, uh, in Seoul in 88 to finish fourth. You know, that was a, a massive one for us. We've beaten Italy before. We've beaten 
some of the massive European teams that we should have never beaten, and then we haven't been able to take that next step, and we just keep hanging around that fourth spot, mate. They have a tin medal. We'll be able to get that one, but unfortunately they stop at bronze, mate. So uh, we're yet to medal. That's the dream. I mentioned the painful lessons. What one burned the most and hurt the longest? Was it 88 or was it one of the other four games that, that really stayed with you for a while? Oh, no, I think 88 was the one that, that burnt the most. You know, that's that's the one where you think we're right there. We're right there, 88. That burns the most. And then probably the other one is, uh, for, for more of the personal reasons, is the loss to New Zealand, not being able to redeem that and come back and, and coach and go on and beat them again, mm. you know, to, to get it back there. They're probably the two that eat at me the most. The, the, the 88 one, losing to, you know, we lost to the United States. It wasn't like we lost to a, a bad team, but uh, you go, that was the chance that was missed. And we had one of the world championships, that, a similar thing. We, we should have beaten America and gone on and played for a medal, and we didn't do it then either. So those two stick in McClure a little bit. Phil, what about Barcelona 92 when it all changed, of course, and the pros were allowed to play Olympic basketball? The dream team entered the fray and it was pandemonium, wasn't it? It was Jordan, Bird, Magic, Barkley, Malone, the list goes on, Ewing, Drexler, Pippen. It was a ridiculous squad. What was what was the circus like around the basketball program at Barcelona 92 from your perspective? Yeah, it was a circus, mate. It was uh, an unbelievable time. The, the biggest names in basketball come to Barcelona. It's opened up for professional athletes, which had been professional for years. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.